Chapter Twenty One of Bullets and Billets by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One, Back from Leave, That Blinkin' Moon, Johnson Oles, Tommy and Frightfulness, Exploring Expedition. As I had expected, the battalion were just finishing their last days out in rest billets, and were going in the following night. Reaction from leave set in for me with unprecedented violence. It was horrible weather, pouring with rain all the time, which made one's depression worse. Leave over. Rain. 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 Trenches again. And the future looked like being perpetually the same, or perhaps worse. Yet somehow or other, in these times of deep depression which come to everyone now and again, I cannot help smiling. It has always struck me as an amusing thing that the world and all the human beings thereon do get themselves into such curious and painful predicaments, and then spend the rest of the time wishing they could get out. My reflections invariably brought me to the same conclusion, that here I was, caught up in the cogs of this immense, uncontrollable war machine, and like everyone else, had to, and meant to, stick it out to the end. The next night we went through all the approved formula for going into the trenches, started at dusk and got into our respective mud cavities a few hours later. I went all round the trenches again looking to see that things were the same as when I left them, and on the colonel's instructions started a series of alterations in several gun positions. There was one trench that was so obscured along its front by odd stumps of trees that I decided the only good spot for a machine gun was right at one end on a road which led up to Messines. From here it would be possible for us to get an excellent field of fire. To have this gun on the road meant making an emplacement there somehow. That night we started scheming it out and the next evening began work on it. It was a bright moonlit night, I remember, and my sergeant and I went out in front of our parapet, walking along the field and crept up the ditch a little way, considering the machine-gun possibilities of the land. That moonlight feeling is very curious. You feel as if the enemy can see you clearly, and that all eyes in the opposite trench are turned on you. You can almost imagine a Boche smilingly taking a name and saying to a friend, We'll just let him come a bit closer first. Everyone who has had to go out in front, wiring, will know this feeling. As a matter of fact, it is astonishing how little one can see of men in the moonlight, even when the trenches are very close together. One gets quite used to walking about freely in this light going out in front of the parapet and having a look round. The only time that really makes one apprehensive is when some gang of men or other turn up from way back somewhere, and have come to assist in some operation near the enemy. They, being unfamiliar with the caution needed and unappreciative of what it's like to have neighbors who hate you sixty yards away, generally bring trouble in their wake by one of the party shouting out in a deep bass or shrill soprano, "'Ear, chuck us the ammer, Harry!' or something like that, following the remark up with a series of Vulcan-like blows on the top of an iron post. Result? Three star shells soar out into the frosty air and a burst of machine-gun fire skims over the top of your head. We made a very excellent and strong emplacement on the road and used it henceforth. I had a lot of bother with one gun in those trenches, which was placed at very nearly the left-hand end of the whole line. I had been obliged to fix the gun there, as it was very necessary for dominating a certain road. But when I took the place over from the previous battalion, I thought there might be difficulties about this gun position, and there were. 
The night before we had made our inspection of these trenches, a shell had landed right on top of the gun emplacement and had outed the whole concern, unfortunately killing two of the gun section belonging to the former battalion. For some reason or other, that end of our line was always being shelled. Just in the same way as they plunked shells daily into St. Ivan, so they did here. Each morning, with hardly ever a miss, they shelled our trenches, but almost invariably in the same place, the left-hand end. The difference between St. Ivan and this place was, however, that here they always shelled with heavies. Right back at the Douve farm a mile away, the thundering crash of one of these shelves would rattle all the windows and make one say, Where did that one go? All round that neighborhood it seemed to have been the fashion, past and present, to use the largest shells. In going along the Douve one day I made a point of measuring and examining several of the holes. I took a photograph of one with my cap resting on one side of it to show the relative proportion and give an idea of the size. It was about fourteen feet in diameter and seven feet deep. The largest shell hole I have ever seen was over twenty feet in diameter and about twelve feet deep. The largest hole I have seen, made by an implement of war, though not by a gun or a howitzer, was larger still, and its size was colossal. I refer to a hole made by one of our trench mortars, but regret that I did not measure it. Round our farm were a series of holes of immense size, showing clearly the odium which that farm had incurred and was incurring, but whilst I was in it nothing came in through the roof or walls. I have since learnt that the old farm is no more, having been shelled out of existence. All my sketches on those plaster walls form part of a slack heap surrounded by a moat. Well, this persistent shelling of the left-hand end of our trenches meant a persistent readjustment of our parapets and putting things back again. Each morning the Bosch would knock things down, and each evening we would put them up again. Our soldiers are only amused by this procedure. Their humorously cynical outlook at the Bosch temper renders them impervious to anything the Germans can ever do or think of. Their outlook towards a venomous German attempt to do something frightfully nasty is very similar to a large and powerful nurse dealing with a fractious child, sort of now then, Master Frankie, you mustn't kick and scream like that. One can almost see a group of stolid, unimaginative, non-humorous Germans, taking all things with their ridiculous seriousness, sending off their shells and pulling hateful faces at the same time. You can see our men standing over a real stiff, quietening answer, with a sporting twinkle in the eye, perhaps jokingly remarking as a shell is pushed into the gun, "'Ears one for their officers, Mess Bert.' On several evenings I had to go round and arrange for the reconstruction of the ruined parapet or squashed-in dugouts. It was during one of these little episodes that I felt the spirit of my drawing, There Goes Our Blinkin' Parapet Again, which I did some time later. I never went about looking for ideas for drawings. The whole business of the war seemed to come before me in a series of pictures. Jokes used to stick out of all the horrible discomfort. Something like the points of a harrow would stick into you if you slept on it. I used to visit all the trenches and look up the various company commanders and platoon commanders in the same way as I did at St. Ivan. I got a splendid idea of all the details of our position, all the various ways from one part of it to another. As I walked back to the Douve farm at night, nearly always alone, I used to keep on exploring the wide tract of land that lay behind our trenches. I'll have a look at that old cottage up on the right tonight, I used to say to myself, and later, when the time came for me to walk back from the trenches, 
I would go off at a new angle across the plain and make for my objective. Once inside and feeling out of view of the enemy, I would go round the deserted rooms and lofts by the light of a few matches, and if the house looked as if it would prove of interest, I would return the next night with a candle end and make an examination of the whole thing. They are all very much alike, these houses in Flanders. All seem to contain the same mangled remains of simple, homely occupations. Strings of onions, old straw hats, and clogs, mixed with an assortment of cheap clothing with perhaps here and there an umbrella or a top hat. That is about the class of stuff one found in them. After one of these expeditions I would go on back across the plain along the corduroy boards or by the bank of the river to our farm. End of chapter 21 Recording by Philip Gould